Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? It's been a while since we have invaded your ear bones. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 104 of Baltimoreans, the show that's been on a bit of a hiatus recently, but is now back in action with an all-new episode. Not sure how you folks are feeling about that, but I've heard Gary Thorne is pretty excited about it. Oh, baby! We've got a fantastic (laughs) show for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. In just a bit, we are going to chat with Mr. Andy Livingston, who you may know from Twitter as at Elevator Doors, or from his sports blogging at elevator-doors.net. Andy's a sports fan with a sense of humor and a solid moral compass, meaning he's more qualified to host this show than Alan or myself, who are obviously both sports fans, but things get a bit murky after that. Actually, I'm not even sure I'm technically a sports fan, as I recently learned that Madison Square Garden is more than just one of the increasingly rare locations where you can find a smoothie king in this otherwise Jamba Juice-dominated city. Evidently, it's also home to a professional basketball team. In your defense, Sam, that's only technically true. Still, what with rapists staffing the Tampa Bay Rays bullpen, articles like the recent Dirk Hayhurst piece in Sports on Earth revealing the horrendous culture of casual sexual assault in the minor leagues, and maniacal tycoons raking in millions of taxpayer dollars on stadium deals whose terms would make Montgomery Burns blush, it's a confusing time to be both a right-minded human being and a supporter of professional sports. Andy joins us tonight in an attempt to bring some clarity to the ever-increasing chaos. But first, no episode of Baltimoreans would be complete without our most popular recurring segment, the Brad Bergeson Franchise Report. Ah, Bergeson. Now, I don't know if any of you folks have scoped out the Orioles Franchise Encyclopedia page on BaseballReference.com. You all have, don't lie. (laughs) Which means you've probably noticed that they've added a new feature, which shows the most valuable player on each year's team according to Baseball Reference's version of Wins Above Replacement. And if you take a gander... At the entry for 2009, you'll join me in shock, awe, and frankly, a not insignificant amount of depression (laughs) that the player worth the most wins above replacement on the squad that year was not Brian Roberts with his 283 average, 16 home runs, and 30 stolen bases. It was not Nick Markakis with his 293 average, 18 home runs, and 101 RBI. Nor was it Adam Jones, Aubrey Huff, Matt Wieters, or Luke Scott. It was Bradley Steven Bergeson and his 123 and a third innings of 3.43 earned run average pitching to go along with his microscopic strikeout rate of 4.7 Ks per nine. It is easy to forget how rare a decent pitching performance was for the Orioles in light of our recent run of excellence, but there was a time in those dark and stormy days when our manager's jersey sported both his surname and the physical sensation we felt whenever an Oriole pitcher took the mound. That's right. Trembly. I'm not talking about the distant past here, friends. I'm talking about 2009, when for a brief flickering moment, for a heady stretch of 19 starts, before Billy Butler shattered bread, shinbone, and our dreams along with it, it looked like the guy <laughs> carrying the torch out of the rotational gloaming would not be named Mattis, or Britton, or Tillman, but rather Bergeson. Of course, all of that happened before you, one of our legion of dearly beloved Baltimoreans, spent 103 hours and counting, piping the nonsense that is this program into your ears on an almost weekly basis. 
as you sit here, just a few minutes into this 104th instance of reckless audiophonic self-endangerment, <laughs> you may be asking yourself, and are definitely asking yourself if you're our friend Aaron, really? I'm doing this? Again? What on earth am I doing this for? What do I get out of this? I went to college! I majored in comparative religion with a minor in classical bassoon performance. I have prospects in life. I... Oh, God. Oh, no. What, what if I don't have any prospects in life? What if the next hour of whatever precious little time remains in my ultimately insignificant existence is spent listening to... To this? If that sounds like you, well, I have good news for you. Because my esteemed colleague Alan Smith is here, as usual, to calm the frenzied anxieties of your fertile young mind with some much-needed context for our show, here on episode 104. Well, Aaron, and other morons, anyone with half a brain knows that 104 is the number of guns on Admiral Horatio Nelson's flagship, the HMS Victory. Of course, Nelson and Victory are both important words in the current Oriole season, but there are other connotations and other connections here that we need to delve into. Since we've been away from things for a bit, let's see what we can unpack. Because you see, Baltimoreans, we have had a tricky few weeks here at Hootenanny Studios. There were bedbugs and breakups, the clusterfuck happening in Ferguson, and whatever the shit ISIS continues to be. Sometimes it can be hard, through all of those things, to keep up an overwhelming focus on the Baltimore Orioles. Even worse, when we do check in on the O's in times of great emotional tumult, expecting to have the cruel slings and arrows of reality deflected momentarily by the sweet, dulling tonic of sport, we vest ever greater amounts of emotional energy into this team. Losses become a real danger, not only of untracking a suddenly dominant Orioles offense, but also of forcing Sam and I into losing the one tenuously held thing that still anchors us to a universe which contains goodness, meaning, and hope. So imagine, Baltimoreans, what a sweep at the hands of the lowly cubs of Chicago will do to our already tender psyches. It is in this hypersensitive world that we attempt to come to terms with the dark clouds amassing not only around the Oriole season, but also around our own lives. Clouds darker than the tornado mists of Chicago during Saturday's rain delay. Of course, I hyperbolize. But not that much! Which is why we turn this week to the legacy of Horatio Nelson, that British admiral who commanded all 104 guns of Her Majesty's ship Victory. Nelson is the man credited with saying, on his deathbed, KISS ME HARDY! which we could interpolate in these dark days as an affirmation that our defensively solid but increasingly offensively challenged infield, led as it is by James Jerry J.J. Hardy, could still lead to a great moment of happiness. But perhaps more relevant is the Nelson line, desperate affairs require desperate measures. Why is this important, Baltimoreans? We are, perhaps, at desperate times, here in the unfolding of the great American experiment. We are also, perhaps, at desperate times, in the waxing and waning of both Sam and my lives. But let us take heart from Nelson's words, because we do not yet need desperate measures as Orioles fans. As it turns out, unlike Horatio Nelson, whose greatest victory at the Battle of Trafalgar also led to his death at the hands of a French sniper, 
the recent spate of winning against very good teams has left the Orioles with enough of a cushion in the American League East that we need not take desperate measures just yet. So we will use episode 104 to bemoan our losses and lick our wounds, but in so doing, my message to you morons is a simple one. Things are still going pretty well for the Baltimore Orioles, and at least everyone else in the AL East still sucks. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Brad Bergeson Franchise Report, where each week we take the three most relevant news items from Birdland and beyond and assign them an objective quality score. Item number one on this week's Franchise Report, it happened again. Our dear young Emmanuel, out for the last two weeks with an injury to his other knee, will have season-ending surgery and will hopefully be back to full strength in time for spring training in 2015. Sounds familiar. Sam, what is your assessment of this frustrating development? I'm going to give this one Hillary Clinton at the 2008 New Hampshire Democratic presidential primary. Woof. If you will recall, dear morons, some of you whippersnappers probably weren't even born then. (laughs) If you recall, ladies and gentlemen, that was a moment where we started to see candidate Hillary a little bit differently. Uh, That was the moment where she got a little emotional during an interview and caused the people who perceived her as sort of cold and calculating to be a bit more human. And I think that is what we are realizing about our dear Manny. He is a defensive wunderkind. It's a little bit of German for you. (laughs) Thanks. He, He is an excellent offensive producer, particularly for a third baseman, and particularly in a lineup which, as Gary Thorne was pointing out today, does not hit the ball to all fields very well. Um, We all know that he does those things very reliably when he's healthy and in the lineup. But I think what we have learned now that we have a fairly significant sample size for Manny is that even though he is not yet 23 years old, he is a little bit fragile, not just physically, but also emotionally. He's a little hot-headed. Sometimes the the competitive spirit is too much with him, to put it um, in a gentle way (laughs) and he may not be the kind of plug and play slam dunk that i think a lot of us assumed that he was going to be i think it's very possible that manny comes back from this injury and really rounds into form beginning next year and after all he is very young and he's still got he's still years away from his prime which if he gets better than he already is is going to be a joy to behold but i think it's equally likely that he may turn out to be an Eric Bedard, somebody who shows an incredible amount of promise early on, but for a number of reasons, physical and mental, um, ends up becoming more valuable as a trade chip and brings us something back in return that we can really use. And if that's what ends up happening, we're, we're going to have to be okay with it. I am not emotionally ready to consider trading Manny Machado yet, but I'm going to give this a ranking of one fantasy keeper not working out and it's interesting to me when i think about fantasy sports 
that uh, there are certain players where you you get them and you just pencil them in. You don't need to have anybody else on your on your bench. They are they are <laughs> they're going to just be keepers, right? They're gonna they're gonna hold the 162 games. They're going to be fantastic. I did this with Manny Machado <laughs> this year. I, however, uh, am a regular owner of Troy Tulowitzki, mm. um, a fantastic baseball player in all regards, but someone who has earned. Um, the the moniker of injury prone um, <laughs> many times over and a fantastic he, baseball player in all regards except the regard of consistently playing, <laughs> playing baseball. baseball so you know you're you're excited if you get 130 games out of Troy Tulowitzki a, a number that he is going to be well under this year this is the third time that Manny Machado will miss significant chunks of time and at some point that needs to start reflecting on how I feel about him as a baseball player. And it's interesting that the first two times that didn't happen at all. And I was still, I still had Manny as uh, the next coming of Brooks Robinson and I had him penciled in and he was going to be there at the hot corner forever and ever. Amen. And then all of a sudden this time, as soon as he hurt his knee, I was convinced that he was done for the year. He is now Troy Tulowitzki. He is now in my mind as oft injured, which is an interesting thing because it means that every time I watch him play from now on, what's going to happen is every time he swings too hard at a ball, every time he lays out, every time he hustles down to first base, I'm going to be holding my breath. Next up on the Brad Bergeson Franchise Report, you ball don't even think about taking your next turn in the rotation. (laughs) Buck Showalter announced this week that struggling right-hander Ubaldo Jimenez will be moved to the bullpen for the foreseeable future. Smith, what do you make of it? Previous to this weekend's series, I would have given this a solid double. I say before this weekend because then we had to see him pitch out of the bullpen this weekend because Bud Norris was rain-delayed out of his start, uh, and he was bad there too. So I don't know what we do with him. (laughs) I feel like Buck uh, made a good baseball decision that was not you know, weighed down by the $50 million contract. And he made the decision in a way that would allow him to bring Ubaldo back as a starting pitcher next year if Ubaldo proved he was worthy, but also got him out of the way because he was hurting the team. And uh, then I was hoping he would be a good long relief person and that he would be perfect in this exact situation when someone went two innings and couldn't continue. And then he was diagnosably not very good there as well. The the end result is that uh, I, I think it was the right move, but it doesn't necessarily feel like that's going to suddenly redeem Ubaldo as a useful member of the 2014 Orioles. I'm going to give it a home run. <laughs> All right. And I'm going to give it a home run less uh, because of the Ubaldo factor and more because of the Buck Showalter factor. Yeah. Um, I think we on this show and, and our sister wife podcasts at the Baltimore Sports Report Network, of which we're a proud member, um, have spent a lot of time talking about how much the only really frustrating thing about Buck Showalter is his tendency to stick with guys that he believes in, even when the on-field performance just doesn't measure up. Last year, he continued to run Jim Johnson out there and save situations, right. high leverage situations, right. close games. Um, when Jim Johnson was manifestly not getting the job done, Jim Johnson blows nine saves. We miss the playoffs by just a few games. I think when you look at what happened with Ubaldo Jimenez, it's got to be very tempting. And Buck's got to be getting a certain amount of pressure from ownership that Ubaldo Jimenez is a guy who got a big name free agent contract. He should be out there every day. He should be pitching himself back into form to justify the investment from ownership. At the same time, this year, in this case, Buck Showalter realized, I think, at the appropriate time that 
having Ubaldo Jimenez be a starting pitcher is not a winning strategy for this team. And this team has a unique window of opportunity and cannot afford to experiment with Ubaldo Jimenez's mechanics and stuff when we're in the heat of a pennant race and most other things, the Machado injury aside, are going pretty well. And I salute Buck for that because to me, from where I'm sitting, it appears to be an evolution in the way that he deals with his players. That's interesting. I, I wonder if part of that is because Ubaldo never became one of his guys. I wonder if part of that is because I think Buck is extremely loyal to people who have performed in the past, and that's why you see Jim Johnson sticking around for a long time. That's why I would argue that Chris Davis is still in the lineup despite hitting 189 right now. Um, but I, I, I think that perhaps Ubaldo didn't necessarily get the 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 full Buck treatment because he came in as a new high-priced veteran and never really did anything to win Buck's favor. Yeah, and I, I think I think there's something to that. And I think there's also something to the fact that um, the Duquette doctrine mm-hmm. uh, of organizational depth at all costs is really continuing to pay dividends this year and, as we'll sort of talk about in a moment, appears to be a, a new vision for a winning strategy in Baltimore. And because of that, um, I think Buck feels like he can trust the organization and the rest of the team to take up the slack. I want to pick one other bone with your statement before, though. Do it. I think we can no longer really say that the Orioles have gotten lucky this year. I mean, we've gotten lucky in the fact that the Yankees suck. We've gotten lucky in the fact that the Rays sucked, and then that was not even particularly injury-driven. They just had a really bad spate. We got lucky that the Red Sox lost all of their mojo and fell apart. But in terms of injuries, if you now look at the team that we are six games up in the American League East as of this evening, as of recording time, despite losing our last three, of last year's offensive threats, the only person who is still any good at all is Adam Jones. We lost Weeders, we've lost Machado, and we've effectively lost Chris Davis, which are three of the four, um, you know, offensive powerhouses that were carrying the team. So I don't, I don't even think that the narrative of us getting particularly lucky holds true anymore. All right, item number three, let's go there. Um, item number three concerns the broad perception of the Orioles by the national baseball media as the beneficiaries of extremely good luck. That's the explanation offered most notably by Fangraph's David Dave Cameron, and no shortage of other writers to explain away the Orioles' three consecutive seasons of competitive late-season baseball. Here at Baltimoreans, we may be all-weather fans, but we're not all-weather idiots. We think it's a little bit more complex than just luck. Sam, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to give this the seminal moment in the film Mission Impossible 2, when Tom Cruise finds himself in the desert, <laughs> outmanned, most likely outgunned, and then he looks down at the shifting sands and moves his foot and a pistol appears Ah! and he uses that to run trains on the opposition. (laughs) I think what's going on with the Orioles cannot yet be quantified. Uh Uh, I think it is still submerged beneath shifting sabermetric sands. Um, But whatever it is clearly works. And I think that once you have a team like the Orioles, who for three years in a row has not been picked to compete, but has, despite that, been one of the most competitive teams in the American League, uh, it's it's hard to continue to identify that as a statistical outlier. So one of the interesting jumping off points for that to me is the fact that in terms of advanced metrics, we've gotten pretty good at looking at offensive statistics 
offensive statistics. Uh-huh. Um, but with the exception of, of pitching, the way that we evaluate defense, uh, people can't really agree on what the best metric is. Well, defense is a huge part of the Orioles game. It is extremely, extremely important. It's talked about all the time. Uh, when Buck gives interviews, it's an organizational philosophy. It's the reason Cord Phelps came up instead of Steve Lombardozzi or Jamal Weeks. It's it's the way that, that this team is structured. And I think it, because of the fact that we can't agree on a good way of quantifying the value of defense, we are not able to build that into whatever predictive models we're using when we look at the Orioles. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um then, you know, Baseball Prospectus had a very interesting chapter in its annual this year where they, they said outright, to their credit, I think, we don't know how to quantify managerial contributions. Right. We have no idea how to do it. And I would add to that, they have not figured out how to quantify um, the the merry-go-round that was the AAA club for the Orioles in the past two seasons. Buck Showalter is somebody who we all love him for the effect that he's had on the team. But I think we also all love Buck Showalter because we'd really love to go over to his house and enjoy a glass of Jim Beam Black, (laughs) as Pat Jordan did um, for his Sports on Earth profile of Buck Showalter, and just listen to him uh, talk philosophically about how he approaches running a baseball team. And we know that a lot of that is very detail oriented and, and numerical and statistical, but we know that a lot of it also has to do with personality management and with intangible dynamics that only Buck Showalter can manage in the way that he does. I'm going to, in along the same lines, give this ranking one Alan Greenspan. Um, (laughs) Alan Greenspan, of course, the 13th chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, who... But you knew that already. <laughs> ...who famously um, missed the uh, 2006 housing crisis, which sunk the uh, entire American economy into the Great Recession. Uh, asked about that later, he admitted that he had been made a mistake in his modeling. Uh, and in fact, he had not accounted for the fact that humans are somewhat irrational at times. One Alan Greenspan, because at some point, if your models fail dramatically, perhaps you should consider creating a new model. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, I'm not particularly someone who trusts models. Uh, I think that the idea of modeling things and I think that uh, people people who spend a lot of time trusting their models often miss the forest for the trees. I'm not just talking about sports here. I'm talking about economics. I'm talking about consulting. I'm talking about healthcare. All sorts of people are making all sorts of high-powered guesses that are, in fact, exactly that. They are guesses. And I think when you spend a lot of time uh, uh, trying to come up with a model, that model has a way of becoming truth in your eyes. And I think, in fact, models are useful for their vague predictive abilities, but they are only slightly better in a lot of cases than people who are um, pontificating wildly by throwing things at a dartboard. All right, well, coming up right after this, we are going to talk with Mr. Andy Livingston, and he's going to join us to tell us why it's okay for us to continue to be sports fans despite all evidence to the contrary. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. And this over here is Alan Smith. All right, morons. I'm going to get up on my soapbox for just a moment here. I have an announcement to make here on these airwaves. 
the only football that I, Alan Smith, will be watching this year is going to be football from the English Premier League, where I will be supporting current table-topping Tottenham Hotspur. That's right, this is the year that the NFL has just become too much for me. I'm not sure if it was one local football team doubling and then tripling down on their absurd and unnecessary name, or if it was the other local football team punishing Ray Rice for beating his wife by suspending him for half the time they suspend a player for getting stoned, or if it was the ongoing refusal for the league to take meaningful action to acknowledge the devastating effects the concussions are having on the sport, but this is the year that I'm actually just going to stop watching football. Perhaps they can win me back in future seasons, but right now, the entire organization just seems too morally bankrupt. Right, Jason Jones from The Daily Show? John, what else do you expect from this league? It ignores heinous actions. It covers up the injuries the game inflicts on the players. And it regularly screws over taxpayers on stadium and infrastructure deals. It is time to say it. The NFL is a morally indefensible organization. Of course, that being said, man, am I glad training camps are back. I am ready for some football. A Sunday night morning. Jason, you just laid out, in my estimation, an eloquent uh-huh. and incredible case against the ethics and the morality of the National Football League. Yeah. And now you're telling me you can't wait for it to start up again. Yeah, yeah. It's a terrible, terrible organization. But I already ordered the party subs for opening weekend. So internally inconsistent, but what are you going to do? You can follow through, Jason, with your convictions here, which are well taken. Oh, oh, okay, okay. So, so, so no more Giants games for you then, John? Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, if it's on in the background of the sports bar that I'm in, I can't ask him to turn it off. Just because I'm not going to watch the new offense the Giants have installed with McAdoo in a shorter passing game, higher completion percentages. Come on, Eli, you can do this. Yes. Uh, Exactly. Okay, so maybe if it's on at the sports bar and the Orioles are also playing, I will check the scores. Fine. But here now to grapple with the ongoing question of how we keep getting lured back into these silly games is Andy Livingston, who writes at elevator-doors.net and tweets at elevator underscore doors. He also writes at Impose Magazine, and we're happy to welcome him to the program. Hey, Andy, welcome to Baltimoreans. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. So you are more, uh, you have more claim to being a Baltimorean sports fan than either Sam or I, probably the two of us combined. Is that right? I think so. Is that by, <laughs> is that by virtue of living in the city? Geography uh, and, and following all of the different Baltimore sports teams? Yeah, I, with much chagrin, I follow much of <laughs> the rest of the Baltimore sports teams. <laughs> Um, Sam is is really just a baseball team baseball fan. I'm more of a sports polygamist. Where do you fall? You're you're just a you're a sports generalist. Is that right? Uh, I think that's generally true. Although my my true compass probably lies with basketball. All right. Um, I'm not necess- I don't really follow the rest of baseball outside of the Orioles, except for like kind of keeping my ear to the ground. I tend to go more more general basketball i do tend to like prefer my teams i do in, like what watching the wizards 
but I also have to have a Western Conference team. So mm-hmm. I really like the Memphis Grizzlies because, of course, why have anything easy? Um, <laughs> spoken, spoken like, like a, a true Orioles fan. <laughs> yeah, basically. So as somebody who, you know, not doesn't just follow sports, but really thinks about a lot of the issues kind of around being a fan, do you think, uh, what do you think of the, the particular cultural moment that we're in? Because from where Alan and I are sitting, it's a whole lot of evil going on. Yeah. Um, I, will, I will say, I think there is, there is garbage, you know, surrounding at all levels. But I do, <laughs> what I, I do find interesting, especially with, um, with the Redskins name controversy, um, I'm a Maryland native, and I've grew up sort of closer to D.C. than I did to Baltimore. Right. And you would hear sort of like maybe once a year a little a little spike in traffic about the name controversy. Um, I generally attribute that to maybe a columnist was having a slow day. <laughs> this has been probably two straight years where this story won't go away. Right. And I, I think that is interesting that, and, and the further it goes along, the more tone deaf the Washington football club looks. Um, Dan Snyder is not endearing himself to anyone uh, at this point, and his sort of lack of uh, empathetic candor is sort of kind of shocking. <laughs> That's a good word. Shocking is a good word. Yeah, so I mean that that, that that's exactly uh, that that is that is exactly the right phrase to me, and it seems like uh, their willingness to double and then triple down on what is essentially a a tone deaf strategy continues to be fairly shocking. Do you think that though that the Redskins are fundamentally different than other organizations in that way? Are they are they getting caught out right now? Because they actually they they are they are they have a maybe a step too far, or are they particularly worse than say the rest of the NFL? I I don't necessarily think they're worst. I think they are more arrogant. Hmm. I think the fact that they are sort of embroiled in this and and they refuse to let it die down and hand it over to. You know, you have a tone-deaf owner who then hands it off to a tone-deaf PR firm to fix it. (laughs) And no one can say, no one is like, either no one is stepping up to Dan Snyder and telling him, this is going horribly wrong and you need to pull the plug. Or he's just so tuned out that none of that matters to him. Um, (laughs) It's hard to say. Because, you know... You, and it's it's interesting because of all the of all the off season controversies, this one is the less the the least event orientated. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been like a giant thing that blew up. There wasn't necessarily like um, a single racist element that brought out this this right. sort it, of rancor against them. It's and not no a one, Donald Sterling situation, and no one right. punched it's not a, a uh, punched it's a, not punched a Ray Rice situation, right? <laughs> Um, it's not even a, a Jimmy Ursay situation, right? which, you know, and, and the fact that they, those organizations that have had sort of like legit event oriented crisis are really down, trying to downplay the whole thing, whether or not they're successful is, is up for debate, but the Redskins just seem to be running at it full speed (laughs) 
and not getting that like no one is buying it. So I guess I guess the thing that makes me curious about then is, and this question is not intended to put you on the spot in any shape, way, shape, or form, but um, as somebody who feels the way you do about the name, will you continue to watch Redskins football games this year? And if if you will, what what kind of paces are you having to put yourself through to to justify that for yourself and really that that's not intended to say if your answer is yes you're a bad person because i continue to engage with baseball despite a number of moral objections to any any number of things there as well but i guess i'm wondering like what are you having to tell yourself what's the story you're telling yourself and if you're talking about it with friends like what what is your guys discourse on this that i mean the interesting part about that is because I have a hobby slash more serious hobby where I'm writing about sports, I do have to encounter this. If I didn't, I probably I would not watch Redskins games. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, okay. I have made a promise to myself when I'm writing about them that I will not use their team name. Yep. Okay. Um, I've just, it is, it's very controversial. It's very like iffy. Yeah. I don't know what I've told myself yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting what you say about, uh, you know, taking a moment to really stop and, and wrestle with this, because I think that's, that's a step beyond what most people are doing. Um, one of the, the things that Alan and I talk about sometimes, uh, that I'd love to get your thoughts on is, uh, I was definitely in the Peter Angelos is a terrible human being camp for years and years and years, solely based on the comparatively non-evil facet of his personality, which is, I'm not going to spend too much money on free agents. Um, Right. um, And now, in light of, you know, revelations about the Donald Sterlings and Dan Snyders and the list goes on of the world... um, I actually find myself looking at Peter Angelos in the aggregate as a net positive or at, at worst neutral, um, neutral sort of figure in, in this conversation. Um, do you, have you gone through any, any evolution in your feelings about him? It's interesting because it has sort of swung back in this way due to, you know, you have these, these Peter Angelos being a local guy who is basically an ambulance chaser um, and who raised all this money sort of going after in this, in this kind of sleazy way. And then the years of not spending money and just being, and everyone wanted him out. I mean, there were so many petitions. I feel like every year there was a different petition <laughs> right. yeah. team and sort of, and now like once he signed, uh, once he got Buck to be the manager, you were like, Oh, now something's actually had now he's putting in the right people mm-hmm. to do this kind of stuff. And now it's interesting to see his attitude towards the the Masson deal with the Nationals is sort of sort of swinging him back in this way where I understand his anger, but he's also a little a little arrogant about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and maybe that's completely deserved because someone said we're going to encroach on your media market in a huge way that you have had, you know, the Orioles have had entitled to themselves for a very long time, and now we're splitting that and taking it away. Mm-hmm. I do understand his, his thing, but at the same time, it's almost, he's very similar to Mark Cuban in this way. Hmm. I think 90% of the time, he's, he's generally, I, I generally am on board with him. 
then he'll say something that is just like kind of ridiculous and kind of shows that he is in the business of owning a team. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to deal with as a fan because you don't want your, your president to treat it as a business. You want to treat it like a fan. Yeah. And when they say they're treating it as a business, you're just, you, you can shrink from that. So I want to take us back to uh, this fantastic, and I say that with all of the irony in the world, Twitter handle. Which is the at Redskins facts, um, which has been, I, I, you know, I, I doubling down and then tripling down on a, a really just just a bad social media strategy. And I would say getting rightfully um, just panned by the Twitterverse. But there are a couple things that they came out with originally. Um, they have this sort of history of our name set of facts on the website. And then that was out on the Twitterverse, including the fact that a uh, senior linguist and curator at the Smithsonian Institute confirmed that the actual origin of the word redskin is entirely benign. And, like, they, they, they've gone historical, they've gone statistical, they've gone every way that they can to defend this idea. And I, I'm left um, feeling as though I cannot, in good conscience, continue to have anything to do with the team because the idea that a defense, for example, of the use redskin is that at one point it was benign is also a defense you can use against the word negro <laughs> or negro yeah. or chink or any of these different things that have obviously become harmful and and the right. the, the tone deafness of it is is really really stunning yeah i i i don't know like i have a little bit of insider information into this and maybe this is maybe that i'm speaking out of turn but I, I will just go ahead and do it. Um, I have a family member who worked in the county where the Redskins Stadium is in Prince George's County. And he was a very, uh, he was a pretty popular um, member of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And he was asked to become the new, this was probably over 10 years ago, was asked to become the new Redskins chief of security. And he had turned down the job because Dan Snyder had huh. fired the previous four <laughs> Redskins chief of security <laughs> in like a period of like a year and a half. Wow. And so I think that Yeesh. that story has always stuck with me as, as sort of his, his malevolence of, of just he wants to be the dictator. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, one last point I wanted to to make that I'd, I'd be interested to get your guys' take on is uh, just, you know, when we're talking about the sort of public-facing efforts that these teams have to um, control the way they're perceived, one of the, what I think, potentially very effective arguments in favor of the blatant racism of, of a lot of these names is team mascots. So let's look, for example, at the Washington Redskins, who uh, do not have um, a stereotypically Native American man running around in a headdress as their mascot, right? They used to. They used to, but they don't anymore. (laughs) Right. Uh, The Cleveland Indians do not have Chief Wahoo running around. They have, and I'm not making this up, a pink dinosaur named Slider. And the Atlanta Braves uh, have, it's either a beaver or a guy with a baseball for a head (laughs) whose name is Homer. Ah. Now, the Orioles, because their team name is not racist, have a Baltimore (laughs) Oriole. Uh, The Brewers have a jovial gentleman named Bernie Brewer. Right. Um, I think 
if we wanted to force a lot of these team owners into a position of admitting that there might be a problem with the name, one way of doing that might be saying, if, you, if there's nothing to be ashamed of, why won't you allow your mascot to embody the name of your team? But then, but then what are the A's going to do? Well, everybody <laughs> thinks of an, a giant elephant when they think of athletics. <laughs> Same goes for uh, the Phillies. Yeah, exactly. What would you say that a Philly is in the flesh? <laughs> ah, well, it's a derogatory way of referring to women, so maybe we should tar the Phillies with the same brush here. That's true. That's true. I feel like there's a there is a lot of space for a um a a probably not a, a Tigers tweets facts, but maybe a Lions, a Detroit Lions tweets facts that has to do with the dying car industry. I feel like there should be also something about how the the water crisis that is currently going on in Detroit, but I don't know. I don't know if that's anything actually funny enough in that situation. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Really like, just uh, like awful and sad. Yeah, somebody pours ice water over a coach's head after they score a touchdown, and we freeze. <laughs> oh, no, you know, that. it should be. You know, we're, we're it'll it'll be like Detroit Lions. We're contributing to water water conservatorship because we never win enough games, so we'll never be done. There we go. There we go. It's a way of giving back to a waterless community. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) All right, Andy. Well, thank you very much for joining us this evening on Baltimoreans. Uh, Where can people find you on the Internet if they want more of your insightful thoughts? I am on Twitter at elevator underscore doors. My website is elevator-doors.net. And I am covering sports on imposemagazine.com. All right, sir. Well, uh, we will catch up with you again soon. And thanks again for joining us. Thanks, guys. Well, folks, that's about all the time we have on the show this week. But before we go, Alan, you should probably tell people about the bizarre event that just transpired here at Hootenanny Studios. Yeah, this is really one for the books here, folks. Look, as many of you know, Sam keeps a cat here at the studio. As a general rule, it's a fairly docile creature who knows to make himself scarce when we're attending to the solemn business of recording this program. But just now, during the musical break that you just heard... He burst into the room, meowing furiously, and then began to dry heave vehemently. Sam and I were confused. Had the cat just found out that the Orioles went and got themselves swept by the goddamn Cubs? Was he so frustrated by the situation in Ferguson, Missouri, that he could no longer physically contain his outrage? Should I get him a glass of water? It turns out, morons, that he just had something caught in his throat which appears to be a crumpled piece of paper bearing the scrawl of none other than our intrepid former intern, Scotland P. Diego, which means it's time for another edition of Where in the World is Intern Scott Diego. I have the paper here. Scotty writes, Dear fellows, all is well here in Istanbul. Well, not all. I appear to have gotten myself married to a trader of fine silks who informs me that her other husband will be displeased to learn of my existence. She's confident that his physical strength will be no match for my nimble intellect, but I'm not so sure. At any rate, I wanted to let you guys know that while you did a fairly decent job of broadcasting the Orioles-White Sox game last week, Sam, as he often does, got so excited about a pun he wanted to make that he made a critical factual error. As you may recall, Sam... 
and Sam Malone, apparently found it hilarious that the White Sox have a backup catcher named Tyler Flowers and that the Orioles used to have a backup catcher named Tyler Teagarden, making for, as Sam put it, the least imposingly named pair of backup catchers named Tyler you could ever hope for. While it is true that neither Flowers or Teagarden are imposing in any way, shape, or form as ballplayers, Teagarden's first name is, of course, Taylor, not Tyler, so I'm afraid the already flimsy construction of Sam's joke once again falls apart in light of this correction. I'll write again, assuming I'm able to defeat Zanuba's husband in combat. Apparently he goes by Arslan the Disemboweler. Wish me luck. I'm going to need it since I am merely, as always, Scotty the Intern. Whew. Good My luck goodness. Out there, Scotty. Jeez. I hope that Arslan the Disemboweler is just because he's particularly good at uh, gutting a fish. <laughs> In that case, perhaps they'll all have a nice meal together and talk <laughs> things through. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I do know some fantastic Turkish fish, fish recipes, so there's that. <laughs> well, take this piece of paper, wad it up, <laughs> stick it in the cat's mouth, and <laughs> see let's see what happens. That's All our right. show, ladies and gentlemen. You uh, have, of course, been listening to Baltimoreans, which featured the music, as always, of Marshall York. <laughs> it's been a the, while, guys. It's been a while. On the Baltimoreans theme song, uh, the, the band Town Hall with the song uh, Waiting for Another Song on the Interstitials. Uh, of course, also Weather Report with the song Birdland. And here on the outro, it is the Black Crows with Kicking My Heart Around. You can find us on Twitter, as always, at BMorons. And we welcome your comments on the show on our iTunes page. Just search for Baltimoreans in iTunes. Or if you want to listen to all the back episodes of the show, as well as some of our hand-picked interviews, check us out at BMorons.com where you can also hear the live show that Scotty, in, uh, the intern, just referenced all three and a half hours right there for your listening pleasure. Alan, uh, I have a question for you before sure. we depart here. Sure. What do you call Henry Arudia when he gives up his already flagging baseball career to become a ballerina? Why, that would be Henry Tondu Rudia, of course. That would be also an obscure hat tip to Charlie Hoppus. And that's our show. Good night all. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. <laughs>